Ark, it's an 87th Precinct podcast bonus episode. Paul here, just to do a very brief introduction for you to this episode. As we know, Evan Hunter, Sal Lombino, Ed McBain wrote under a variety of pseudonyms for doing different types of books and to increase his chances of selling different stories to different places. One of the things he did early on in his career was to write a few sci-fi or juvenile fiction stories, one of which was Danger! Dinosaurs! And that's what this episode is all about. You can find the book on Kindle, we talk all about that stuff in the episode, and I'm joined for this by my brother, Gary Abbott, who is a science fiction and speculative fiction writer himself, and he'll tell you all about that stuff in the episode. I've not done much editing on this, so it is full of ums and ahs and yeahs and so's, as there normally is in speech, that you often don't hear because I cut a lot of them out. So, I'll leave you with this then. Danger. Dinosaurs. So, Gary. Hello. We're sat here in a studio which was once your bedroom. Was. Your juvenile bedroom. Mm Mm-hmm. Before you became a man. Yeah. And... I was going to say fled the nest now. <laughs> Flew the nest, fled not the nest. fled the nest. Fled. Yeah, no, this is my old bedroom. And uh, I seem to remember putting this desk up for Tony as well. Yes, that's our stepdad. Mm-hmm. So, this is a room where, at one point, there would have been a small bookcase which would have contained some dinosaur books. Yeah, we had a pretty dog-eared yellow dinosaur book, didn't we? Which We had a copy of the... There was a National Geographic one, which was done like mock-ups of... Photographic things, like it was a, as if they'd gone like, back into the past. Like a dinosaur f- spotter's guide, like the bird ones. No, no, it was it was done as if someone had gone to the past, taken photos, oh, right, really yeah. nice photos. Yeah, that was the yellow one, and then we had two or three or other dinosaur books that we'd inherited mm. from cousins and things like that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of books them. that somehow for creatures that died out a hundred million years ago could go out of date still. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, quite quickly, yeah. It, I'd forgotten all about them. I remember the yellow one. Um, mm. Mm. Anyway, regardless of that, mm. hello. Hello. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, it's not just nepotism that brings you on the podcast. No. It's partly the fact that I've convinced you to get into Ed McBain books. Yeah. But also because you've been writing yourself and you've published a few things. Mm-hmm. In the broad genre of the book that we're going to talk about today. Very broadly, yeah. I've not done time slip slash dinosaurs, but it is sci-fi. Is it, so what What would you describe your output as? Now's um, your chance to sell I have books. done a bit of time travel in one of my short stories. So I have dabbled with time travel. So and the, so the mechanics of it, um, are, I, I've, I've understood a bit more. But uh, yeah, I'd say science fiction, speculative fiction. So more projecting to the future, kind of mm. current day technologies. Um, yeah. So whereas this is this has got, um, as soon as you put time travel into it, though you're pretty solidly in science fiction because yes, you, you start you to always will be ground yourselves into some of the rules that have kind of developed over the last century or so. I imagine. Um, so yeah, my books are a mixture of kind of. My short stories have a bit of time travel in them. I say no dinosaurs at this point. Some aliens, maybe. So tell the nice ladies and gentlemen and people and everything mm-hmm. what what books you've published and where they can get them. Okay, so my first book was called The Dimension Scales and Other Stories, which is a collection of short speculative fiction stories with a common 
a, a, a unifying theme that links the stories together, mm-hmm. and that is available through Amazon and other ebook retailers. But the best way to find any of these is to go on my website, which is www.garyabbott.co.uk, we'll or my link up. blog, which is garyabbott.com, which will also have all my books advertised on it. Uh, my second book was called uh, The Great Connection, which is a space opera, much more... Hard sci-fi. Yeah, a bit hard sci-fi. Not It's not full-on like foundation series type. No. It's not epic in that sense. It was my first full-length one-story novel, 80,000 plus words, um, and that's about virtual reality kind of exploration of deep space in the future. And then my last book, just published, is called Transported, which is actually a comedy sci-fi, more in the vein of a Douglas Adams slash Terry Pratchett style um, uh, genre kind of feel to it, which is about the tra- and teleportation technology and what could go wrong with the first use of it. Yes. So, again, taking quite... Based on a lot of sci-fi rules, what we understand about teleportation... And then playing with what that would mean, things like, you know, according to Star Trek, if you get teleported, you basically get destroyed or reconstructed at the other end. And if you were to add into that a layer of such thing as maybe a heaven or an afterlife, what would happen? You'd get yes, there. you've sort of explored the metaphysical yeah. implications of that in that book. Which is a, yeah, which is a, a classic philosophical thought experiment um, about um, identity as well. So it's... Mixing them up, but it is using the rules of sci-fi, which I'm going to keep mentioning the rules of sci-fi because I think it'll become important later on Yes. in this discussion about Evan Hunter's little foray into sci-fi, which I'm guessing is one of his few. Well, I'll tell you a little bit of background about this in a second, but your books are available basically through your website yeah. and they're available as physical books and e-books. Yes, you can get them as paperbacks, um, well, hardbacks, or what? no, not hardbacks. No, they're paperbacks. Paperbacks. Um, Soft cover. Or, or e-books. Through Amazon, and there are, the first one is on other platforms, the, other, the, the second two aren't. I think you can get them on Smashwords, the first two. But if you go looking for them, you will find them, and especially if you go to my website, because they are all over it. So please do. Or just wander the streets of Stoke-on-Trent, shouting Gary's name, <laughs> and he will reply. Oh, yep. And just before we get fully stuck into Ed McBain's, or Evan Hunter's story, or Richard Marston's story, right. then... You, yeah, then you. Then you. We should perhaps mention that you've now got into the 87th Precinct books. Yes. My badgering. Yeah. You've How are you mentioned... finding it? Yeah, I am. I'm really enjoying them. It's taken, it's like you have spent several years kind of seeding the idea of these <laughs> from kind of like, oh, there's these books to read and procedural. Oh, that's nice. And then, oh, I'm doing a podcast oh, what's about those books. And then uh, obviously listening to the podcast and then buying me the books and then sitting me down and then making me read the books and putting matchsticks in my eyelids. And... No, it's um, I have really enjoyed them. I only took basically it took me picking up the first one and reading it, and then it was yeah. like, well, these are, these are great. I'll have to carry on now. And having the added bonus, well, I started off by listening to your podcast without <laughs> having read, read the books, <laughs> which I enjoyed anyway because I like hearing impassioned people talk about something. But um, after about six or seven, I think I thought I'll I'll, I'll read them and catch up. And now I'm at the point where I'm waiting for you to record the next ones. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I am um, pacing out my reading based on your podcast. I think it's funny because growing up, I read a lot of books. Hmm. You read a lot of books, watched a lot of telly. But I never thought of going and reading things like crime and mystery. That's perhaps because when you're younger, they don't 
do the categories in quite the same way they do as when you're older. No. We didn't but, have any young crime stuff. We had some spy books. Well, we had things like the Famous Five, yeah. which is sort of mystery. Yeah, it's all it's the same same story every time. It's caves, though, isn't it? It's all very coastal. It's you're very cosy and coastal, yeah. and it happens every time they go on holiday. Yeah. But I suppose, probably thinking about, there's quite a lot of it. Mystery found... <coughs> excuse me. Mystery is the foundation for a lot of stories. Yeah. But then watching TV, we never used to watch crime stuff, except for the fact that we definitely watched Columbo. We watched Columbo. I was a big... I loved Columbo. Yeah, I've always loved Columbo. And um, I don't know if it was on at the same time every week, or it was just that it was on so often, you'd be like, oh, Columbo. Yeah. Put Columbo on. But, but I definitely watched a lot of Columbo. In the 90s, certainly, yeah. when it was... I have no fixture. idea what if they were being shown in sequence or, or anything like that. I just remember Unlikely. watching a lot of Columbo. And that was about that. That is our only, my only founding in crime. I never twigged on that as that as being police procedural because it's not really police procedural because he doesn't follow a unless, procedure. Yeah, unless your police procedure is having one bloke who does it. Yeah, it <laughs> seems out. to operate entirely yeah. with outside of the structure of the police department. But it's it's police and crime story, and obviously yeah. there's a Columbo McBain crossover as well. Mm. But years later, I really got stuck into Agatha Christie stuff, which is quite funny because we were sat in the house opposite. The filming location where they yeah, filmed one they of the Agatha yeah, Christie Poirot that. stories for ITV mm. in the early nineties. Yeah. We're, we're literally what four hundred meters from yeah, an big, Art Deco mansion. Yeah, a, a very randomly kind of just preserved nineteen twenties. Well, it's not even preserved. It's just been constantly. Well, it's just, yeah, yeah I mean, it's just in use. It's just. It's not like. Um, it's not a uh, some kind of location you can visit it's not open to the public it's just someone's it's just, house it's just someone's art deco mansion been, it's been a nursery for some years it's been privately owned it's kind of exchanged hands it continues to exchange hands um but it's kind of set we've never really seen it properly no, it's set back lots of trees. behind a, a, a large hedgerow but then one day we were walking the dog and there was loads of uh old cars parked yeah, all up and production vans production in the stuff, fields yeah. next to it and I remember when we actually finally watched the episode, it was hard because of the magic of TV to know which bits were and weren't the interiors from that place. And, yeah. And obviously the exteriors shots were all over the place. But I think it is actually, you know, I think it's series two, episode five, and I can't remember what story it is off the top of my head right, right away. Annoyingly, it seems to be one that's not repeated very often. But that happened opposite our house. Yeah, they, shot, they shot night for day as well, I recall, because... They had huge arc lamps yes. going outside. Yeah, okay. So they were they were, they were lighting up the um, the windows from yeah. So they could. It was LWT, wasn't it? Was it? No, no, just ITV. Granada. Granada. I, I remember seeing London weekend television hanging around. Anyway, so there you go. Mm. That's the street we grew up on, which or not street. It's a road which yeah. goes houses, 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 farm, farm, Art Deco <laughs> mansion, <laughs> nothing, house, nothing, yeah. uh, small stream, and then yeah. So there you go. Background to our growing up there. Yeah, so that's our crime background, isn't it? There isn't our one, crimey really. it's, background. It's come later on, really. Yeah, I did start reading grown-up books. I'm doing that in air quotes quite early on because I whizzed through everything we had and, yeah. and a lot of stuff in the library. But that was tended to be things that Dad had lying around, just sort of thrillers and stuff like mm. that. Like Arthur Haley books, which I probably shouldn't have been reading at the age I was reading them because they did contain quite a lot of uh, I believe the technical term is rumpy pumpy. <laughs> <laughs> Naughty bits. Oh, were they hidden upstairs with the Ben Elton stand-up video? 
<laughs> Probably, yeah. And the Wicked Willy comic Willy books. Book. I, I've read the Sherlock Holmes short stories. I think that's pretty that's much... That's what I moved on to when I made decisions. That's my only real... I've read a bit... Well, that's of detective rather yeah. than crime, isn't it? But definitely not procedural. Anyway, yeah. this is definitely not police procedural no. that we're moving on to. The book we're looking at is Danger Dinosaurs. That's Danger colon, colon. Dinosaurs. The colon's very important. Exclamation mark. Yeah. Can you think of Danger what? Yeah. Dinosaurs. I yeah. wonder if you could have had a range of stories. Like Danger Loose Train. <laughs> well, yeah. Danger Aliens. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, a better, that's a better one than Loose Train. <laughs> loose Train, like Runaway Train. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> More standard than Loose. Watch out, it's a Loose Train. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Danger Dinosaurs. Great title. It, it, it tells you everything you need to know. It does. It's it's a juvenile fiction book, as I believe how it was categorised originally, which tells you something you need to know about how people treat science fiction or treated mm. science fiction, is that it was generally... It wasn't, here's a science fiction book, which unless you were doing something like Foundation, it was caught, they were de- generally treated as juvenile fiction. Yeah. It's a kind of adventure for boys type feel to it, doesn't it? But in A little bit, yeah. Yeah. It's very much of its time and definitely of its style. It's it's written and it's written by Richard Marston. Right, I didn't know that. That's which is one of his pseudonyms that he used very early on mm-hmm. for a number of different types of books. It wasn't that he definitely used it as this is the juvenile fiction persona because he did yeah. do other stuff published under that name. I think once he had a bank of pseudonyms, mm. he scattered it across and possibly in his mind he had certain styles. I think with Ed McBain and Evan Hunter he thought of those as two different styles of writing, right. which is why it's got a bit confused as things have been republished right. under either Ed McBain's name or Evan yeah. Hunter's name when they were once Richard Marston or Kirk Cannon or yeah. Ezra Hannon or all these different names he used. And it was published in 1953, so it's only about the fourth thing that he had fully published as a, as a work. Yeah, You can tell it is early in his career, in his development. Yes, that's a, perhaps a better way of putting it. But it's now republished under Evan Hunter's name, I believe. Well, yeah, they, they, I've just looked at the, um, the the inset page and it does say published... Oh, well, where's it gone? It did say something about it being Evan Hunter as Richard Marston. Yeah. So it says, oh, um, copyright nineteen fifty three by Evan Hunter as by Richard Marston. As, as by. by. Yeah, there's a few... Sp- there's quite a few typos yeah we should say that we've not read this in physical editions because they're very hard to come by and i think the reason for that is because they were cheap paperbacks at the time perhaps even cheaper publications than the perma book crime editions so the few that have survived Mm. are in very bad nick and very hard to come by and therefore quite expensive so we are reading this on Kindle, which you can get. Excuse me, you can get it through Kindle Unlimited, or just buy it outright. Yeah, I so I had to read it on my phone, which is not a thrilling reading experience. No. But it's like it's been character scanned, isn't it? Because sometimes there's spelling yeah, mistakes where like it's just, M's turn up instead of like an I N or U yeah. N or whatever. I do or, or very very hastily, um, and you know, kind of um, transcribed by someone yeah. Yeah, very hastily. But let, if I just go over the sort of start of. Evan Hunter's career. The first couple of juvenile fiction books he put out were Find the Feathered Serpent, which is 1952, which he put out under his own name. I think mm-hmm. it's his first registered publication. 
He did one called Rocket to Luna in 1953 as Richard Marsden. Okay. Then Danger Dinosaurs comes along. Yeah. There's a couple of early crime stories in there as well. This is published just before he publishes The Blackboard Jungle, which is a hugely important book in his career and also culturally, mm. coming along in 1954 as it does and tying into the start of rock and roll and the, the sort of the media scares that all surrounded yeah. that. And it was one of the flagship pieces that people were hanging on about kids behaving badly in schools. Oh, sort of, I, yeah, about gangs and things, is it? Gangs within schools or, okay. or sort of the way... And tying it into rock and roll music when the film came out. Mm. And obviously this is a very big and important book early in Evan Hunter's career. Set him up for life, really. Mm. In terms of establishing him as a writer. In a way that Danger Dinosaurs, I don't think, was ever going to do. Did it it not? No, funnily enough. You may be the first people who've read this since 1954. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. uh, yeah. But um, you have to start somewhere, though, don't you? And also, when you find your stride and you find your voice, I think things can click into place. So presumably, this feels almost written to brief to me. He was writing for children and needed to impart some information about dinosaurs. So maybe... It's pretty hard to find your voice if you're going to be a gritty, a gritty, culturally rooted crime writer when you're writing about time travelling and dinosaurs. Maybe it's just he was never going to be comfortable in his in his voice. In this, you know. I think he was just trying lots of things. And also part of the reason for having the pseudonyms was partly to give a bit of delineation between what he wrote, mm. but mainly because it meant he could sell more stories to the same magazines. Yeah. Because they wouldn't That's just right. go, oh, it's Evan Hunter again, again. Yeah, or yeah. Evan Hunter again, or Evan Hunter again. It's, I've got one from Richard yeah. Marston, one from Ed McBain, one from Kurt Cannon, one, you know, stuff like that. So he was being canny. Yeah. Because he was also at some points working for them, for the publishers that he mm. was sending these stories to. <clears throat> but he was learning to write quite early on. And a lot of these things are, are hang ups of that development stuff yeah. that you would have done in nowadays in creative writing courses and things like that, yeah. perhaps, as part of your development. Well, this reminds me, I did a before doing my because I did creative writing at Open University um, but prior to that I wrote a novella and the mistakes I was making in that without formal training or a lot of experience behind me seem reminiscent of some of the mm. some of them in this like you know little slipping of perspective here and there you know, who's been written for and yeah. where, what, what viewpoint from but still an accomplished bit of writing you can tell the seeds yeah. of what is to come from here. So it is really worth, um, I think, exploring as, as a, a fan. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of little bits of information. Not much I can find out about this. It's not like he was asked about this over the I years. Like, yeah. So there's not acres of, uh, of research and interview materials. Yeah. But we can tell from the book that it, well, it was dedicated to Shirley, his mother-in-law. Yeah. So that was of his first wife. And there's a thanks in there to Dr. Frederick P. Young, who is a geologist. Mm -hmm. And I did a little bit of research and I could have actually found out quite a lot about him because being an academic, they are generally very well mapped and their their work and research is published, even if it was from earlier in, uh, well, in the last century. So Frederick P. Young was a geologist. He was born in 1904, died in 2003. So he lived a good long life. Very, very good long life. And the important thing is that he joined the faculty, the geology faculty at Hunter College in New York in the 1930s, which is where, and he stayed there for a long time, and that was where Evan Hunter, or Sal Lombino, went after the war. He came back and went to college there. 
and Hunter is thought to be one of the places where he took inspiration for his name. Which from. he denies. He denies but that. But it sounds like it. Well, he went to Evander High School and, and Hunter yeah. College. It's. I think even if he doesn't realise he took it from there, he probably did. At least I suspect he was subconsciously. He was. He's been playing games yeah. with people, but. But the the point is, he went there. So presumably, he, after he came out of the navy, mm. he went and did his his degree there in English and psychology, and he would have thought, well, if I need to go and get some facts checked, mm-hmm. which we know he did. So that's an important, interesting thing. At the start of this book, he says, I went and checked this with a geologist who studies yeah. the Jurassic period. And he said, A-OK, Sal yeah. or Evan. And that's... Uh, which which is, it does lend the book, I think, a bit of an authority because they, he obviously has... Some of the names down. We has the name, some of the dinosaurs. Some of the Latin names. names. Yeah, and, and he, you know, he's learned a bit of the a bit of the flora and fauna of the time, so that he can pepper it with. Well, packs. one of my favourite thing is he. Sometimes Evan Hunter has a thing that he he seizes on in books, mm. and it might be one term or mm. one word even that he uses over and over again. Mm. It's almost like he's learnt it new, and he likes to use it. And in this one, it's the word is cycad. Cycad. That, I was going to say, how, how are you going to say it? Is it cycad? Yeah. Um, well, it's C-Y-C-A-D. Yes. I use the, the, the one good thing about using a, a Kindle is being able to click on the word and say, give me a definition. Oh, I was right, thinking, okay. looking at that thinking, I think that's that's a plant. Yeah. And it is. It's, it's a Jurassic plant. That is. So they still exist today. They're basically yeah. the types of seed-bearing palms and things like that. Mm. But it's basically all the plants that if you someone says to you, we need to film a Jurassic scene. Yeah. You go out and fill it up with these types of plants. Yeah. So rather than him talk about specific things, he just used the word cycad over and uh, yeah, over and a over lot, again. There's a lot of cycads in this. So there. Yeah. You probably could do a count on how many. I don't know how you search. Uh, I, um, but we won't do that now. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's one of the ones he's really clearly learned it and thought, this is a handy term, so yeah. I don't have to describe too much. If I just say this is this is in there. I mean, in pre-Wikipedia days, having a, you know, a geologist... A geologist um, at your kind of and a Jurassic expert um, at your beck and call to help you with research must have been very valuable. Yeah, definitely. So let's get into this book. Let's, as always, what I like to do when we start is just what are your general impressions, Gary? I think some of it's come across already. Yeah. So, like I said, I think uh, it's got that kind of adventure for boys, and you know, in that sense that you used to get those big collections of kind of yeah I used stories. to like them yeah. they were all sort of war era sort it's, of daring do and yeah adventure it's, and... it's a it, in many ways it's very linear it's an it's a it's a journey story it's an adventure story it's got dinosaurs and running around and it's got you know it's all all the kind of stuff that would make for good dinosaurs and running around are the main thing that children like yeah and that's it and and actually there's not a huge lot of difference between this and, you know, your Michael, um, I want to say Crichton, but some people say Crichton or Crichton. Crichton. It's Crichton, Michael Crichton type of, it's got the same core elements, which is di- dinosaurs are running around. It, it yeah. gets there differently. Um, and that's fine. It's got a bit of bit of um, intrigue and sub subplot going on there as well, you know, um, and it's got the, this kind of sci-fi device which offers another dimension to it in the centre of it, which um, which I'm sure we'll get on to. And it it was an enjoyable read. For, it's not very long. So it's not very long it's, at it's, all. It's, no. it's a short kind of read. It's, um, yeah, but it does feel 
like a, a young writer's kind of, or someone maybe downplaying their ability because of the genre. Yeah, thinking, not think, the, I don't need the to audience. do too much because of this, but actually could have got away with more. But he seems to also develop as it goes through. About halfway through, he starts offering kind of um, italicised, in this edition anyway, yeah. kind of introductions to the scenes, which kind of like, you know, almost like di- directorial kind of vignettes of what's happening, which sound like the beginnings of chapters in the 87th Precinct. Um, yeah, a little series. bit, I suppose. And also, he's, what starts to creep in in this is there's a bit of social commentary as well. Yeah, yes, yes, definitely. Quite heavy-handed, I'd say, but... Often in the 87th Precinct, it's quite heavy-handed mm. as well. So social commentary about people's station and behaviour towards each other mm. and people's behaviour towards people who are different to them mm. and things like that. And then there's a very much... It's a bit like a... This sounds like some stupid thing to say, but it's a bit like a Shakespeare problem play. This this children's book by Evan Hunter. Yeah. In that it gets to the end and it's like... I've just got to wrap this up now. So oh, yeah. Shakespeare would always go, right, you marry him, yeah. they go off there, this happens Deus to this person, this baddie does yeah. this. This is sort of what happens in the last chapter of this book. In fact, in the last section of the last chapter of this yeah. book. It does it by a means, though, that has been introduced. I mean, I think we're going to have to deal with this means, although we, I guess you want to kind of set the scene for the well, book. Well, I'll set general. the scene. The nature of the book is we meet Chuck Spencer, mm-hmm. the brother of the guide, Owen Spencer, who is hired to take people on time slips. Yes. Time slips being a technological method whereby they can go back in time to, in this case, the Jurassic period, Mm -hmm. and safely, Mm -hmm. in theory, observe the flora and fauna of that period. And the implication is that this is something that... Well, actually, I say that now, and I've started to doubt myself straight away. But the implication sort of is that it's something that rich people do, like going on safari. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's Except a that he does say that there's a thing called, and this is a brilliant device, I love this, tempomaniacs. Yeah. People who are addicted to How time slips and that? go on that, yeah. go on them even when they shouldn't be. How but, did they do that? Yeah. Because actually it's... It's, it's supposed to be regulated by yeah. the government, isn't it? So unless the technology has become, it's regulated, however, it doesn't stop people... When they get yeah. there, being it weird. does have a that does our good. voices keep breaking. It's like being in your bedroom from when we were kids. <laughs> like we, we're going, so we're time back. slipping back to being thirteen. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, you're right. That, that 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 does offer a nice little kind of glimpse of a wider world. The tempo maniacs who who want to escape, like time hermits. They want to go back to times before there's any. So, whereas everyone on this tour, who's this very expensive tour they pay for with guides, are meant to be contained within a force field when they arrive where they will camp they're kind of in a force field bubble aren't they where yeah. they, they spend a week where nothing can kind of get in or out but they can they can hang around the perimeter with binoculars and cameras and hunt via the media of um, photography yeah the only thing you'll be shooting are cameras you know exactly. taking pictures but as i say chuck spencer's the the our main character mm. and he's along sort of along for the ride because he's there yeah. with his brother and the party of five that have paid for this under the <laughs> well the main the main guy who's paid for this is a guy called Dirk Masterson, Dirk Masterson. Masterson. who I've written down his his role in the book is simply baddie he is baddie he is baddie he is baddie yes and he's there with his obsequious little assistant Brock Gardell he is 
baddie number two. He is two. baddie. Yeah. He is snivel- snivelling baddie. Yeah. Rather than main baddie. He's like a little sidekick baddie. He's the one that you actually want to have offed before you want the main yeah. baddie off because yeah. he's so annoying. And then the rest of the party is Masterson's niece, Denise. 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 I didn't realise that. I have no Denise. doubt that Evan Hunter would have gone, what can I call... What can Don't I call, call Denise? Denise. Denise. <laughs> I've only just, it's only saying it out loud. Yeah. I've thought that, yeah. yeah I think that probably works even in a New York accent. Denise. That wasn't the New York accent. No, that wasn't. No. But also Pete, his cook. Yeah. And, who just is weird. And Arthur, who yeah. is a sort of... He's just a well, hired hand. He's a hired he? hand, a dog's body, in yeah. fact. He is essentially a slave. Yes. He, and yeah. he's used as such to explore issues of... Of race, because he's black as well, isn't he? So uh, they they, they very much use his status. It's interesting because the main black character in the 87th Precinct is called Arthur Brown. Yeah. And the the black character in this book is called Arthur. It seems a bit like... I don't know. Was it a huge, important name for African Americans at the time? I don't know. Or maybe when he was thinking about his characters for the 87th, he thought he just already had it in his head, having already concocted a character. And later on, we come across a couple of displaced scientists who, yeah. despite being doctors and specialists in geology and paleontology, can't stand in the right place to get back from the time slip and no. they're trapped there for six months. It's unclear how that time slip... Yeah, I suppose because they, they, they purposefully were mentally their force field and go looking for... Oh, yes, they, 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 they were, they were sponsored to, to go and... They're searching for a uranium deposit. Is that the big revelation you were going on about when you were talking to me the other day? No. All oh, right. Okay. We'll come to that. No, one. my big revelation is I I, 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 we will get to, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to presume that we're not going to find too much spoilers in this. Um, well, I, well, no, I can do. Do it you know what? Spoilers. I think we can, we can pretty much not yeah. worry about it yeah. for this. But the uranium thing, no. But that's why they're there, isn't it? But we don't know that till later on. But that in itself isn't that important when we first meet them. It's just that that's why they're there. Yeah. They were sent to find. It's kind of like. Then that idea is quite interesting as well, mining it, mining the past to feed the Literally future. Literally mining the past. Yeah. However, it's that he does say something about the, what they're mining is in order to kickstart a self-perpetuating uranium kind of refinery. Yeah. So that he almost. Well, early fifties nuclear things are very much yeah. in the yeah. in the public consciousness, not least because of the end of the Second World War Mm -hmm. and what happened in Japan and then obviously the start of people trying to rebuild industries Mm. trying to rebuild the world and get won over on each other by having the more powerful systems be it for energy or warfare so it's not surprising that that crops up in the middle of a a science fiction book from the period but basically Chuck and Owen are taking these guys back in time and they're doing it via a time slip mechanism yeah the time slip yeah so what about the what about the mechanism? Let's have some of this sci-fi stuff. I mean, that's, that seems pretty standard to me. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Time slip. You sound like a mechanic. He, he does kind of give you a bit of a description of it. Um, he says, let us, I mean, it's literally the beginning of the book. Let us imagine an intricate combination of tubes and coils and relays and knobs and dials and knife switches. I don't know what a knife switch know. is. No. I think that must just be like a throw switch. Yeah. Let us suppose that the mind of man has so combined these unrelated pieces of machinery as to allow them to alter the steady progress of time, and let us call its combination a time slip. And then it goes on to say how it can take you back wherever you want, and um, 
you know, you could go back to the Egyptians or you could go back to the Crusades or why not the Jurassic period, which is indeed what they do. And why not? Yeah. Um, that's very um, topical. Oh, yes, yes. Seeing as the film has just been cancelled. That's entirely um, irrelevant to our listeners. Yeah. Uh, and then they don't really say much more about it. All I my, my, my mental image of it, without referring... I read the first few chapters a little while back, so it's a bit fuzzy compared to the rest of it, which I read very recently. My mental image of it is a kind of a big energy force field that you stand in the middle of a kind of a, a, a patch of land, which presumably maps to the patch of land that you're going to arrive in. So you're, you stay, you stay yeah, stationary even... in, in space, but you move in time. Yeah. So time moves around you, kind of, as you stand there, and you appear where you were standing, but in a previous time, which yeah. it, geologically would probably be caused problems. Yeah, I know. It just suddenly occurred to me that the You'd idea probably of be in a mountain or... Pangaea and the, the movement of land masses and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, but that doesn't really matter. And that you stay in this bubble until such a time as that time slip like a week later, like you said, is recalled and it will... So there's no activation method to get back from when you're no. there. When then there's you're no there machinery yourself. on the other side. It needs to be someone in the yeah. future. Or the, the now. The, the technology is in the present for the for the characters to the technology of the, the, you know, to activate and recall it. There is no... They don't have any... It's like a, it's like a shoot, I guess, that you get, you get shot down a pipe which lands you somewhere and you can get sucked up that pipe. But when you... Wherever you land... You don't have any way of switching yeah. it on or off. So you need someone that, to lower that, a ladder. That to me fits some nice rules. That's a portal type thing, you know. You well, he describes it as being like a, a an LP, like a record, doesn't he? And how oh, the grooves thing? don't disappear just because you've reached the the edge of the record. Oh, They're right. still there. So what the time slip does is literally slips you back across all those grooves. Yes, it does. I remember that now. Yeah, it, which it, feels like. One of those sort of ideas that makes almost sense, but at the same time makes absolutely no sense. Which would be sense. fine if the record was kind of um, warped upon itself. Yeah. Rather than a flat disc. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting theory, but... That you'd lift up and like, time is like a groove. In a, like, yeah, I, I, I'd forgotten about that. So it's just basically saying the past continues to exist even though up. you've reached this yeah. point. So if we could just pick you, pick up you, the needle on the record player, and, and move you, you back into, into yeah. one of those other grooves. Into a time stream. Yeah. Which is, which, again, as I'll get to, <laughs> with a bit my big problem slash kind of revelation with this that I have for me, um, would does kind of imply causality which he goes on to explore yeah so if something changes in the past it's something they, should the, the reason there would be yeah, a knock-on effect there the are rules and regulations about classic this. time travel it's the butterfly effect yeah as we all know how that works someone stands on a butterfly in the past and the modern day is full of loose trains <laughs> yeah that's it um so we will i guess the record um the groove on the record kind of gives you is in in the um is in line with that that kind of concept. But as we've talked about here, the technology is when they get back, there's a safe force field that starts just surrounding them, then expands out to something like a mile or something like that. And so it's perfectly safe. Nothing could go wrong. No. Unless you've invited a rich idiot who really wants to shoot dinosaurs Mm -hmm. with real guns and that. Yeah, and has brought um, a lot of real guns along with him and no one has... So they've, they've brought... Not only the seven of them have gone anyway, yeah. they've also brought a jeep yeah, two, and a truck. A jeep and a truck, yeah. 
and the truck somehow is full of guns, despite the fact that they're not allowed to take guns to the guns past. and so they haven't inspected it. Yeah, guns and um, um, explosives. Yeah. Mm. Although there's a sequence in that where he goes, oh, there's TNT in here, mm. when they're having to unload this truck at some point, and then it's never mentioned again. No, but you know why that is, don't you? Well, yeah. <laughs> but it's... So yeah, they, 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 yeah, they, their checks and balances aren't. They, really. they haven't, they haven't really nailed it, have they? They're, they're very, they, they, you know, especially as the the main guy, does it? Um, Owen is is very like, come on, you you can't mess with things. We've got to be careful. But he wasn't really that careful in going out there in the first place with this fellow and his um, his entourage and his small yeah. armory. So Dirk Masterson immediately his first act is to get in the jeep and drive it full pelt at a force field. <laughs> yeah. And uh, which, of course, causes the force field to short out. Yeah. Not damaging the Jeep at this point, I, I know. No. But meaning that there's no protection between them yeah. and the dangers of the Jurassic period. No. Which is mainly huge plant-eating dinosaurs. Yeah. And the threat, the constant threat of Allosaurus. Yeah, that's, that's the... Um... That's the main beastie in this one, isn't it? That it is. And I am glad that he's steered away from doing... Tyrannosaurus. Tyrannosaurus Rex and getting all the time periods mixed up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, isn't Tyrannosaurus not Jurassic? No, it's later. Yeah. But Allosaurus is smaller and more deadly. Yeah. And I think he's it's a better fit for this as a sort of yeah. threat of like, if we come across one of these, that's it. And also, was the Tyrannosaurus... I wouldn't... You know, you would have to research it, but is, was the Tyrannosaurus as big as dinosaur celebrity as it is nowadays following Jurassic Park and things like that what was it at the time would you I, th- I well I seem to record it was always the big one because when we were well, growing yeah, up all we the dinosaurs the 50s, we? yeah we weren't growing up in the 50s no but we were reading dinosaur books from the yeah. 70s and 80s and it was always present wasn't it yeah I, think I don't it was... know if it was discovered though I thought I don't know if it's fossil record kind of could have popped up since maybe it was already oh yeah of course it was yeah because he mentions Tyrannosaurus. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, right. He just says, yeah, that comes later. Right. He knows what he's talking about. They I... didn't discover Tyrannosaurus Rex in 1955. Oh, I didn't know. And him go, oh, shucks, just yeah. missed. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a limited range of dinosaurs in this, but that makes sense because it, it feels yeah, a bit more grand. four, isn't there? There's, <laughs> There's it's Stegosaurus. Stegosaurus. Diplodocus. Yes, and also... The other one. Brontosaurus. Brontosaurus. There's the Allosaurus and there's the swimmy ones. The Ichthyosaur, yeah, and the um, the Pterosaur. And the Pterosaur, and then there's a couple of mentions of Archeo- that's... Archaeopteryx, that yeah. darn Archaeopteryx. That's it. That yeah. is it. I and mean, we only see we don't see that one, but um, that's enough, really. That's enough dinosaurs, and there's not there's more than one of them. Yeah, there, there's there's more. There's herds. a couple of stampedes. Yeah, um, it it would make it would put to me in mind of um. Things like King Kong, you know, Kong Skull Island. Yeah, not the the one before the Peter Jackson one, especially where the kind of they have like um, stampeding dinosaurs. Oh yeah, yeah, and it would make it would have made if it was you know if it was ever picked up as 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 the script for a film, it would make quite an exciting film. Were it not for the massive fundamental time problem in the middle of it. Yes, uh, but you're all right when you read this. If you actually thought of this in terms of the script of something like Jurassic Park. Yeah. This is not so far It's off not. It. You've got... I mean, it's uh, badly drawn characters, particularly. Yeah. Or, or very simple characters, let's say. It's characters that kids can get a handle on very easily. Yeah. But actually, for a lot of sci-fi TV, a lot of sci-fi film, time travel stuff, this is this is well in that 
it hits, the, it hits the beats for something, for a good sci-fi, almost switch your brain off, but with a little bit more to it, just enough to yeah. kind of keep, keep, maybe cross your audience a bit between kids and, and, and older folk. Like, um, it has your mad hunter, basically. It has your, it has your, it has the... Your big the, game hunter. Your big game hunter who wants to get a prize, or does he? But, you know, that's, that's, well, that's the conceit that starts the whole chain of events. He's a, like, just like um, your Jurassic Park, your second Jurassic Park, Lost World guy played by... Um, you can click British your fingers actor. at me, I can't remember. Oh, you know the British actor, Pete. Pete? Oh, yes, uh, he's dead now. Pete Pothels. Pete Postlethwaite. Postlethwaite. Yes. Is he, you could, he could be Masterson. 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 He, he could be Masterson. Um, although I love to hear sort of Pete Postlethwaite doing, I am Pete Postlethwaite and I'm playing Dirk Masterson. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, because he also has a well, he has a, a not a slimy assistant, but he has like a an assistant. But um, yeah, they, they're, those archetypes are good. They're well, they're, they're they're good for this kind of story, aren't they? They are. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, it was. It's uh, flimsy structurally, but yeah, you could actually turn. You could easily turn this into a script of a, an episode of TV, or yeah, it could even turn it into an episode of Doctor Who, for goodness' sake. Yeah. And it'd be it'd be all right. I think you could do a, get a film out of it. I mean, they they, they shoot some stegosaurus and have to have to escape from a stampede of stegosaur stegosaurs. Stegosaurus. And um, although I found out something from this, which is that is the, like the genesis, isn't it? Of the that's the oh, we're all we're all terribly naive on our dinosaur. Yeah, the stegosaur life. is a type of dinosaur of which there are several. Any one which is armor plated, kind of Jurassic. Um, and they do the same, kind of do the same with the Brontosaurus as well, don't they? Yeah. They, they, I mean, that would be a bit repetitive. And now it's the Brontosaurus stampede. I think that's just him sort of going, here's some different dinosaurs. Here's some land dinosaurs that yeah. look like this. Here's some swamp-dwelling dinosaurs that look like this. And this is... The, 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 well, shall we, shall we deal with the fact that when he meets the Brontosauruses... Yeah. And it all goes wrong... Yeah. Because... Masterson can't stop himself shooting at these yeah. things, causing a stampede. Yeah. They can't quite get away. Owen Spencer, the guide, saves Masterson. Saves Masterson. At the expense of his own life. Yeah. He gets properly flattened gets by squished. a stampeding yeah. brontosaurus. And suddenly, Chuck Spencer is without his brother. He's just seen him die. He goes to bury him. He goes to bury him. And is this the point at where you're... This is where it all, to me, unfolds. <laughs> like, um, a badly folded thing. Because... Okay. Like shit origami. Yeah, basically. Unfortunately, what he seems to have done here... And I found this really, really fascinating. Go on. Uh, not just as a sci-fi writer, but as anyone who's ever watched any sci-fi. It might be something to do with the canon of sci-fi that's happened since this, that which makes this so solidified. Makes us used to a certain way of it, definitely. He even talks about it. So he does talk about the fact that you've got to be careful in the past, like we said, with the butterfly effect. Because if you squish something in the past, if enough things in the past, or you you, you, you cause enough of a disruption to, to the past, you are going to affect the present. As we all know, you go back in time, you shoot your grand parent you're never yeah, born yeah, you could never you've got paradox and things like paradox, that that's the word you could stop yourself complex. ever having existed etc right so he yeah. talks about that to make, to prime you because this is for kids he gives them that idea that we, we, which is already really difficult once you start thinking about it in any it depth. is because it, it drives you mad because if you you can't do the thing that you've caused to happen because yeah. you, 
And that's one of the reasons that scientists, rather than science fiction, have come up with as being one of the reasons that time travel can't it's almost a feedback loop you know yeah. Stephen Hawking says it would almost it would kind of cancel itself out or it would just cause some mad explosion because of anyway that's not the the, the main thing he's trying to get across here is you've got to be careful in the past because you can bugger up the future yes yeah. so Owen dies and you think oh well that's just part of the plot you know and now Chuck is kind of like he's becoming the, the leader of the group because he just happens to be the brother of the guide so he's in some ways assume the mantle. Yeah, and and also he's chastised Masterson for what happened. So he's kind of because he's angry about what's happened to his brother. He's kind of captured almost Masterson and Gardell and kept them. Said like you've got to stay in line now. You're causing all this chaos. We just need to get back to the rendezvous site. Um, but then he starts thinking because my brother. Why am I? Am I the guide? And then he starts getting confused about because, and then he realizes that the reason. He's having trouble remembering Owen, his brother, and his role in the whole affair is starting to shift. So he's becoming the guide. Yeah. And no one else remembers him going off to to, to bury his brother. Very quickly, everyone else everyone forgets, forgets Owen's brother existed. existed. And he, he thinks to himself, oh, of course, he's died millions of years before he was ever born. He never existed. It and now time, <laughs> now time needs to adjust. I was like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. <laughs> no, because he hasn't been born yet. Yeah, we we're used his, to this. His death in the past has no implication on his birth yeah. in the future. It's it's really interesting because it it subverts the rules, but not in a good way. It subverts them in a, in a in a logical way that even though none of this is real anyway, you have to start questioning. You know, you start getting a bit. I, I was thinking this this is, this is against the rules of time travel, which don't <laughs> exist because there is no such thing. But we know that if you go back in the past and die, you're just dead. You didn't never never you weren't never born. Yeah, because you're still going to get bored. Because your to presence go in the past doesn't affect start the yeah. events that lead ultimately to your birth. And the only the only thing I can possibly reconcile this with, and he kind of mentions it, ish, and I don't, but I don't think it's him what he thinks. I think he's just got the concept wrong. Is that there is some kind of self writing mechanism to the universe, some 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 extraordinary element. To yeah. the universe beyond just kind of the logistics of of, of a linear timeline, which just doesn't allow the same person to exist out of order. Yeah, he can can't if he's existed at some point, and then dies. That's that that's it. Like that that iteration of the person is the only one that can have been. I think he's just made a mistake with. It. I think he he loves the idea, or he like I say loves probably the, a strong word. He's really intrigued by the idea. And has thought this will make an interesting plot device, and it does because then all the roles change and all the statuses change because the, the brother becomes the guide. Everyone else treats him as the guide. He still can kind of remember his brother because he had more to do with him, but yeah. it's slipping away from him. That's quite sad as well. That bit. It is sad. Uh, yeah, because he's desperately trying to cling to this memory. Yeah, and it's got. It's a bit like Back to the Future as you see the photo fade. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's the thing that makes it more infuriating. Is that would be fine if for some reason they'd caused his brother never to have been born. Yeah, which is. But we hadn't affected his birth. No, we had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with it. Unless they affected everyone. In which case, they'd the all world. be. Yeah, yeah. They'd all. Be. And then he also does this kind of time snapping back type of thing, which is. Um, which is a very that's something that Doctor Who explores that time will kind of find a, almost like the Final Destination films as well. But there'll be some extra force, some again some some supernatural force will make time snap back into place. So just because his brother's dead, 
doesn't mean that that expedition never happened. No. What happened was that the, the Owen's entire and Owen Chuck's entire life starts to be repositioned by some benevolent kind of um, puppet master, so that his life he ended up being a guide for time tours, even though he and he starts to remember a new timeline for himself, which enables that set of circumstances to still happen with the people who are left. Yeah, that's Whereas quite actually, interesting. What would probably have happened is it if his brother had never existed, it doesn't mean that he would have had anything to do with that. He might yeah. not have. And even if he had, why would that set of people still have come together? It would have been too chaotic a change to the timeline for it to to have resulted in that. Yeah. So, which again, Back to the Future is guilty of as well, because just because he was never born doesn't mean there'd still be a family photo, but without him in it. They're all in the same place with their arms around each other. He's just not there. Yeah, it's still it would probably have caused too much disruption for that photo to have ever taken place. But as he, he just gets it so wrong, I, I had to read it two or three times. Like no, <laughs> no, no, that's not how it works. And it's really weird because it's just not how it works. I don't think anyone now would accept that's how it works, would they? I think yeah, even a, a an inexperienced reader of sci-fi or an editor or someone would pick up on that and go, "Are you sure?" Yeah, because he uses it again. Because at some point we finally get um, Brock Gardell gets killed. Yes, he does. Thankfully, mm-hmm. and so he goes out of it, and then that changes everything. Yes, again. It, and then it, yeah, and that obviously changes relationships between people. Mm-hmm. And generally, what happens to the people who remain, though, it benefits them. Their status generally is is improved. Mm. Within the within the world, mm. by virtue of these other people not being in it, yeah. Just a quick word about Pete the cook. Pete the cook, the singing cook. Why is he in it? I'm not sure he doesn't really do he, just to feed everybody. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm quite glad that he didn't bring the character Denise, the niece, Denise. along and say, "Well, you're the cook." No, and That's she's not. Good. Although I mean, she needs to be rescued a lot, she's. She's more neutral than anything. She's yeah. not. She's not a screamer. No. She's just. She's unfortunate in that she, she has to be. A, There's a seeds of a love story there, but it doesn't quite play out. Yeah. Between her and and Chuck, she has a, a nasty experience with an ichthyosaur. Arthur has much more to do because he is Arthur, paid by yeah. Masterson, but clearly believes in doing things right and has had enough as well. Yeah. And eventually they, they come across these two displaced scientists who forgot what they were supposed to be doing and where they were. Well, well they knew what they were doing, but they forgot about where to get back and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. So they're essentially, they think they're tempo maniacs, but yeah. they're actually There's jo- a big jolly misunderstanding, isn't there, where they all think each other are tempo maniacs. They yeah. think that, they, that they're tempo maniacs and they think <clears> that they're <throat> tempo maniacs. But it turns out that they've been sent back mm-hmm. to find uranium, which does exist in... Or form, mm-hmm. uranium might or yeah. something, um, and has done forever. But it's this, so there's very little of it to be found on Earth now. Right. So the theory being that perhaps in the past there was bigger deposits of it. Okay. And that's what they're hunting for, which is a good evil government sort of twisty plot, isn't it? Yeah. Really? And like let's mi- yeah let's mine the past. Although I do say I do think that they say that it's to kind of kickstart. Almost um, a self-perpetuating energy source. Nah. Yeah. Because they don't want them to be the baddies. He doesn't want them to be baddies for mine in the past. Because 
as we find out. Hmm. Because there is a twist, there's more of a twist to this, isn't there? From Masterson isn't just a bullish hunter who has decided to, what's the word? Um, shoot everything. Shoot everything and sabotage the, the, the expedition on purpose, which is always left a bit in doubt whether it wasn't. He kind of says, oh, well, look, the force field's gone and I've brought a load of guns. We may as well shoot stuff from here. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Um, we've got a week. Let's, let's, let's shoot, shoot some everything. Stuff. Yeah. Um, and that, you think that's the extent of the problem. But we took, we mentioned the dynamite before, yeah. And actually, what it, we we think he might be there to do when we meet the scientists is start is maybe he wasn't there just to. Uh, I I got the I read it as and I read it very quickly. I must say, mm. I got the impression that he was more of an opportunist. This, he's the sort of man who would yeah. take dynamite along with him to the bathroom oh, I, just yeah, in I, case. I think he was explicitly there to find the scientists. All right, you think so? I think um I think what they realised well, he's playing a kind of a double game. He wants them to think he's just this spoiled rich man who wants to hunt things, which he is as well. Mm-hmm. But he's he's there because these it's, it was public knowledge that these scientists went missing, searching for uranium. Oh yes, of course. So of he course. wants to actually, because he keeps on asking them to double back to where they found the scientists. So they find the scientists, and they all team up, and they all want to get back to the rendezvous site together because they're all lost, and they've got a, Chuck has got a general idea of where they're heading. But Masterson, who's kind of fallen into line since the death of Owen, wants them to go back to the cave. Yeah, because he thinks that the that where they were there because that's near the and he literally wants to mine uranium and physically take it back with him. He I doesn't want like, to establish a mining site that he can return to. He, he talks just wants to about fill a truck with yeah, uranium, like you do. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm guessing it's dangerous. Well, you need you specialist know, equipment. It's or maybe well, it needs form, to be enriched. You see, before yeah, it becomes right, too okay. dangerous. But although I don't think you'd want to be handling too much of it, no, I shouldn't imagine. And they didn't bring a whole mining operation with them. They brought no. some dynamite. Yeah, and so if someone sort of went, right, we need to load the truck and get back now, you'd be thinking, oh, this truck's a bit heavier than when yeah. we arrived. Oh, it's full of rocks. Yeah, but then they never check them on the way out, so I'm sure they don't check them on the way in. As well. But of course, Allosaurus makes an appearance. Yes. the fabled Allosaurus. Yeah, and it does exactly what you want it to do. Which is it bites Masterson's head off? Yeah, or snaps him in half? In half, yeah, kind of. I, 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 I imagined it as a kind of midriff. All right, yeah, that's kind of that's, snapping. That's that would look good on screen. Mm. Very Jurassic Park, yeah, or Jurassic World, whatever. Because um, the party's been split by this point, and there's all sorts of hostage exchanges going yeah, on, yeah. and in the middle of it, Allosaurus. Allosaurus, just like Jurassic Park, where the Tyrannosaurus Rex is always kind of the. Uh, the broker of a of a scene that he comes in and and yeah. sorts out whatever's happening. If there's some tense, it might be between humans and velociraptors or humans and humans. But what tends to happen, especially in the late, last couple of films, is Tyrannosaurus Rex comes in and just goes, "Yeah, but I'm massive." So <laughs> so you blah, and then that's the end of it. And he does that, you know, he does that much like you'd expect in a tense finale of a film. Yeah, right, we need to get towards wrapping this up. So mm-hmm. basically. Uh, who's died? Brock's died. Dirk's died. Owen's died. Does Pete die? No. Okay. And they finally get back to the rendezvous just in time to be zipped back to the future. Or bounced back to the future across the platter of time. So yes, Dirk's dead. That's the important thing, isn't it? Yeah. Dirk's dead. So the baddie's dead. And when we get back, time has done all its corrections. As it wouldn't, yeah. Yeah, exactly as it wouldn't. And... Chuck has assumed he just he he just is a oh yeah he, a time slip guide now yeah he's forgotten all about his brother 
Denise is not just some girl who's come along for the ride. She's the forefront of a new a new set of yes. female time slip yes. dress colours. Ladies can do it yeah, as well they, now. They thought they might like the, the, the female touch. Yeah. They said it's in, a, a little bit condescending. There's a little bit of that, yeah. It's kind of like, they, thought, Ooh, they can do it and it might be nice for some of the guests to have a female host. But she is, she is on her, because you have to do like, it's like flying hours, isn't it? You have to do yeah. like 10 tours before you get your full license and things. And she's, she's a trainee because she's Denise of nothing now because yeah. her uncle has disappeared from time. And Arthur, his very put upon more or less slave, the slave of Masterson, the decision he didn't make in, in yeah. the earlier part of his life, which is referred to in the book, has come true and he turns out that he's the multimillionaire who's funded this trip. Yeah. And it was just a... Um, an accident. Yeah. It, presumably, because what we end up with is the end of a book we haven't read. <laughs> yeah. I suppose in a way that's quite clever. It is kind of clever, but it does mean that you don't... Um, you've seen you've seen a route through it, I guess. You have seen the end of a book, but you don't... You don't know none of that... According to their time, none of that happened, so... Like, like you say, presumably someone did accidentally drive a truck against a force field. Yeah. They did, but no one died. So they didn't have any of the encounters when anybody died because they didn't lose anybody. Yeah. If it, in a nice way, his way of rendering time kind of gets rid of death because no one dies because every time someone dies, they never existed. So everyone who comes back from the past is always... No one's yeah. ever died. Yeah, but all their stations have been improved, I think. I can't remember what happens with Pete. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's good for the people who are left. Yeah. yeah, they're sort of doing all right. Well, Arthur's completely gone up in the yeah. world. He's, he's become this... Oh, that, but that's part of his social commentary. This is yeah. a, this is a, a McBain-Hunter social commentary bit about if you remove the obstacles to people's progression, happiness, uh, opportunity, then people will get better. Yeah. And... One of the big ways that plays out, especially in America, especially in the 1950s, is between uh, the race, relationship between African-Americans or and, and white people or any of the, of the various races that sort of come together into mm. places like New York and things like that, which is what he explores in the 87th Precinct. Yeah. And here it's played out with Arthur being... But the only thing is, it's you know, he just describes Arthur all the way through as being he was a brown man. Yeah. His big brown hands. Big brown hands. Everything. It's like, well, all right, we've established this. Yeah. We don't need a reminder every time. His brown legs. Yeah. <laughs> he makes. He leaves you in no doubt that he is brown. That he's a. He's a brown. Yeah. He's a brown man. But anyway, he turns out he's a multi-millionaire now. Yeah. He just. You know, Evan Hunter obviously has no. Um, he's, no he's, not, he's, he's no qualms about it. He 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 elevates him. Yeah. To being this 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 millionaire kind of guy at the end, but as I say, it, it must be funny because at the other end they must be sending off twenty people on expeditions and two people coming back and go another successful trip. <laughs> yeah, everyone's come, you know, because they know no one dies. Yeah. It's very it just doesn't. Work. No one died. But along the the journey is is a nice is a fun one. Yeah, and that concept only comes in halfway through, and it does have interesting. It is interesting to subvert the rules. Sometimes and say, well, okay, we're used to this. Let's see what. But it's uh, so. It's, but it's um, and it does lead to nice consequences for the life. Nice of, consequences for, for those who survive. So we need to sum up, Gary, and what we need to do is I've brought the portable version of Kenneth with me. Okay. To calculate the score, but nice. of course, because we're doing a new thing outside of the eight seven three six, we need to decide what unit of of measurement we're going to use. <sighs> so what's appropriate to this? I would say something to do with dinosaurs. Probably. Yeah. Or 
time slips. I don't know if you can do you can't count. time slips out of time slips. Um, I would say some, perhaps the obvious one would be dinosaur scales or feathers. Right. This, is, this is a pre-feathered dinosaur. Well, we talked about the birds. Well, it, the Archaeopteryx, we knew that. Yeah, it talks. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't go full on that all dinosaurs evolved into birds. He just talks about a certain branch of dinosaurs evolving into birds, yeah. doesn't he? Um, I, I think dinosaur scales. Let's go for scales. This is a scaly period. This yeah, one, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, leathery. Mind you, they meet a fishy one, don't they? So, fish have scales. Yeah. Dinosaurs probably have scales. They and Stegosauruses have big scales on the back. Yeah, and um, a scale is also a. Account of, of value, so <laughs> well, that's it works appropriate. Even, yeah, it works even better. So, out of a hundred dinosaur things, scales, mm. what would you rate danger colon dinosaurs? Exclamation Again, mark. Uh, um, I don't want to get too Steve about this, trying to think what you're rating it against. I mean, as a dinosaur romp, I mean, I'm a fan of um, the um, the Crichton books. Which is obviously where you're going to go when you're thinking about how this stacks up. Yeah, and it's it's got a lot of let's say it gets there by different means. Um, I enjoyed it. It's got a really flawed plot device, right, and it's playing the centre of it. But that has interesting kind of offshoots. So um, I would um, I would give it something like. 63, 63 dinosaur scales out of 100 dinosaur scales being a full dinosaur. Being a full yeah. dinosaur. <laughs> okay. Well, I also think it's a fun little story in and of itself. It's interesting to see Evan Hunter's style being played out yeah, in we, the early yeah. days. I like the fact that actually a lot of it is stuff that you would come across in loads of different stories. The Jurassic Park things... you. It wouldn't surprise me to find that he hadn't read this, yeah. Michael Crichton, and yeah. thought, well, I can take some of these ideas. I don't know that. I, I, I think generally this is just sort of this thing that was in the air yeah. of science fiction and speculative fiction anyway. So it's, I don't know, it's good in its own way. But it's also, like you say, reading it as a grown-up is a bit of a funny one. Mm. I'd be interested to read it to a kid. So when my niece... Is old enough. You yeah. have to read a danger dinosaur. I would hope that even that my even now my twenty month year old daughter would say, "Hang on, <laughs> doesn't make it any doesn't work. sense." I mean, she'd have to learn those words and stuff. But I think the concept she'd still <laughs> put yeah. her head around it. But you know, yeah, I'm, I, I'm talking from a twenty first century kind of a sensibility here. Well, I think I would rate it. I'm not going to rate it particularly high. I think I'd rate it 47. Well, I mean, that is low. 47, you see. Yeah, I'd I like feel to, like I've been way too generous now. I'd like to read some of the other juvenile fiction things, and I might buy them and yeah. read them for pleasure. And it... I think my my judgment is basically reflective of, of it as a Evan Hunter thing. I think that's the... the... Yeah, it's not, not up to us. If you were doing no. this against the... No, you certainly couldn't compare it to King's Ransom oh, or God, something no. like that. Yeah. But I think I've just got to look at it in that terms of that. Yeah. Which gives us an overall score of... What was that, Kenneth? Portable Kenneth's very quiet. It gives us an overall score of 55 dinosaur scales. Right. It better do, otherwise Kenneth needs to recalibrate it. I reckon so. I reckon you got, he's got it. I, I think that's okay, isn't it? Without, without any rounding. 
without any rounding whatsoever, yeah. up, down, sideways, yeah. through time, mm -hmm. or anything. Okay. So I think we're going to have a round up there completely. I'm going to say thank you very much, my brother Gary Abbott, for attending to the matter of Danger Dinosaurs with me. It's been a pleasure. Okay. We'll be back soon with 80 Million Eyes in the main mm. series. Promise, I keep saying that. We will be back soon with that in the new year. Happy New Year, everyone, and Merry Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs.